Good morning. So as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, I'm going to start this series about foreshadowings and types of Christ in the Old Testament. And today I'm going to be discussing the subject of the animal sacrifices from the Old Testament and how each of them at that moment in time were pointing towards Jesus' death and sacrifice on the cross even though at the moment they're occurring and in the time frame they're occurring, people don't understand that that's where this is going. And so then it raises a fair question, well, why this series? Who cares that there's stuff in the Old Testament that points to Jesus? All that matters is that Jesus came and died for us. Why can't we just focus on that? Well, I want you to grasp the images and the types of persons in the Old Testament that were pointing to Jesus. Because this shows the continuity of the Bible. It shows that God was always going to his planned endpoint. When things start in the Garden of Eden, the Lord has already determined where it's going to end in the future, well, for us the future, in the great heaven. And everything that happens between the creation in the garden and the end that we read in Revelation is just going on this path exactly where the Lord wants it to go. And this is to help all of us see that nothing in Scripture is random, but that it's all purposeful. Because at times we tend to read, and in the moment that we're reading, it can sometimes appear kind of random because we don't know the past or we don't understand the future. And so when I really... This series is not just about understanding intellectually things from the Old Testament that link to Jesus. It's really about showing how God's love for us has been at work even before we were born and should his return come after our deaths, even through the whole of our lives into death. So with this first sermon, I'm going to deal with the subject of animal sacrifices and how they were foreshadowing Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. And the first place we have to go is the very first sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3. Yes, you are correct. You probably already summarized that there'll just be a whole lot of scripture reading and thumbing back and forth throughout your Bible. And that is absolutely correct. I just can't help myself. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, Adam and Eve have taken and eaten the fruit. They've disobeyed God. God's come and confront them about their disobedience and their rebellion against him. He's pronounced his judgment against them and the snake. And then we get to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So here we have in this very first animal sacrifice, we just have so many different elements of the sacrifice and how it points to them. The first one is, why did God need to kill a couple of animals to give them skins, to clothe them? Right? Because when we remember the fall that occurs, it talks about, it even says it there in chapter 2, that they were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Then they eat from the fruit, and now all of a sudden their nakedness causes shame. And so... The first animal sacrifice was to cover the shame from their sinfulness. 
And that becomes a theme that plays throughout the rest of Scripture. That the sacrifice and the shedding of the blood to cover the shame we feel in our rebellion. A temporary covering. Right? And that's part of the challenge with this particular sacrifice is, is yes, it gives them clothes, but to cover their nakedness, but it can't completely take away their shame and their embarrassment, right? And they have to just keep offering sacrifices. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. Like one's just not enough. You have to keep doing it over and over. And then the second element about this is that who killed the animals? God. God kills the first animal sacrifice. He himself is the author of death here. Adam doesn't go and kill an animal so that he and Eve can have clothing. God doesn't tell Adam, here, go kill that cow over there and turn its hide into some clothes for yourself and your wife. God doesn't say that. God himself goes and takes the animal and makes the skins into something that Adam and Eve can wear. He provides, he gives to them the thing they need in this moment. And part of what they need in this moment is not to add more death to their conscience. And God, His goodness and His provision is the one who does this. Now, I know this is a big jump, but I also don't have three hours to do this subject with you. So the next place we have to go to understand how this points us to Jesus is Revelation chapter 7. And I do this intentionally because we start with the very beginning, the first entrance of sin and shame and how God responds to that. And now we go to Revelation chapter 7 and begin to understand God's final response to the subject of sin and shame. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 of Revelation. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Here at the end of time, when it's all over and God has fulfilled his complete purpose and plan, his people are standing there in white robes covered by robes he's provided through the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of the Lamb in Revelation is always referring to Jesus and his shed blood. It is Jesus' shed blood on the cross that is the final answer to the question of how do we cover our sin and our shame when we have disobeyed God. And we see here this, this just, I mean, this is just, I mean, if, if you stop and think for a minute, this is just stunning. I mean, this is just overwhelmingly stunning. The best we can do in the garden is putting on some animal skins. And we end this whole saga, this long epic struggle of humanity fighting against the evil one and the temptation to sin and to disobey God 
and to not trust him. And, and the whole ending point of this saga is we stand there with white robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross makes it possible for us to bring this lifelong struggle to a conclusion in the joys of His presence fully righteous. Hebrews talks about this, and I'll spend a lot more time on this in the coming weeks. Hebrews talks about the robes of righteousness that are made possible for His people by the blood of the Lamb. And here, this is what it looks like. John got this little brief glimpse into heaven and saw what we all will one day live. He now lives it. And one day we will too. All because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Then the very next sacrifice that we have to look at is the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. So yes, now we've got to go backwards to the book of Exodus in chapter 12. And I can't help myself. I just have to read all 13 verses describing this event. Actually, it's not the event so much as it's God telling Moses what to tell the people and what to do and why they have to do it for the Passover lamb, right? So just as a quick catch up, right, where Moses has had the burning bush experience. He's come back to Egypt. He's talked to Pharaoh about letting my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Moses says, if you don't, God's going to bring judgment upon the nation of Egypt in the form of 12 plagues. And he says no. And then the first 11 plagues happen and decimate. I mean, this is by the time we get to this moment in the book of Exodus, in the story of God setting his people free from their slavery, Egypt is decimated. Their economy is completely destroyed. Most of their wealth has been destroyed. They're, they're looking at several months of famine in front of them. Between the loss of livestock from the plagues, the loss of crops from the different plagues, they're very hopeless. But yet, even still, Pharaoh in his hardness of his heart won't let the people go. And so we get to this moment of the Passover, right? And while all that's happened to the Egyptians... God's just been saying over and over to the people of Israel, to the Hebrews there in slavery, I will redeem you. I will bring you out of slavery. And we come to this moment of chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Okay, let me pause for a second. This is such a big deal to God that he tells the Hebrews you're going to change your calendar I know you operate on the typical Egyptian calendar but listen this is such a big deal you're going to change your civil calendar that you operate on this will be your New Year's Day this event that's about to happen is the beginning the first day of the first month of the year for you from now on that's how big a deal this is to God okay verse 3 Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if their household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor 
shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this batter you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The angel of death is coming through the land of Egypt to execute God's judgment, not so much against the Egyptians, but against the very false, fake gods they worship. And the price tag for idolatry is the firstborn of every house. Just let that sink in for a moment. The price for idolatry is the firstborn of every house. But God in his mercy makes provision for his people. By the blood of the lamb painted over the doorway of the home in which they are in, the angel of death will pass over them and not execute judgment. Those with whom are in the house, the firstborn of those homes are safe. They are safe from the judgment of the angel of death because of the blood of the lamb painted over their door. Wow. Right at this moment, if I was a Hebrew and I was there in the land and I had, you know, wasn't so completely consumed with how awful and hard life is as a slave, I would go, okay, that's kind of weird, God. I mean, Moses, what's going on here? Why? I mean, we're going to do what God tells us to do here, Moses, but it just seems kind of weird. Why are we doing this? What's his purpose in having us paint the blood over the doorpost? And why does it have to be a lamb? It can be a lamb of a sheep or a goat. Why does it have to be a lamb? And why does it have to be just one year old? Why does it have to be perfect without blemish? Why? I don't know. That's just the way God said do it. Because at that moment, Moses and the Hebrews in Egypt could not understand the future that was coming. The future in which the Lamb of God is going to be placed on the cross and His blood will be shed. 
We even hear John describing it when he sees Jesus after baptizing Jesus in the River Jordan. The very next day he walks by and John blurts out, Behold the Lamb of God. Remember, he's talking to a bunch of Jews. They understood when he says, Behold the Lamb of God, nobody had to explain what John meant when he said that. They get it fast. Wait, you're saying he's the Lamb of God, like a Passover lamb? Is that what you mean, John? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Wait, how does that work? I don't know. But somehow it will, because the Holy Spirit has said he is the Lamb of God. Jesus is our Passover lamb, right? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, it's tempting just to give you the verses in the bulletin. But I want you to feel your fingers going through the pages of your own Bible as you find these places. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For or because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is where Paul's He's referring to the Passover ceremony and the Passover celebration that the Jews now keep from every year from that point forward. And he's referring to the you know, leaven is another symbol for sin because of the way that leaven is used in the Passover ceremony and the removing of the leaven is a symbol of sin. And he's saying remove, remove the sin that is in your heart and in your life so that you may be a truly sinless person because... Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for us. This lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who by his blood painted over the doorpost of our hearts, gives us freedom from eternal judgment and from the eternal consequences of our disobedience. And of course, We can't really get a full-orbed idea of what it means for Jesus to be our Passover lamb without going back to Revelation. Verses 6 through 14 in chapter 5 of Revelation. Here in John's vision into into the heavenly world, he sees this scroll that has something really important written on it, but it has a seal on it, and nobody in heaven is worthy to break this seal and open up the scroll to see what is written on it. And then we get to verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God out of all the earth. And he went, the lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard among the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And when I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Do you see? The Lamb goes from this spit upon, mocked, ridiculed, Jesus hanging on the cross with the spears stuck into his side and blood and water flowing from him. He goes from that to the one who is worthy to open the scroll that nobody else in all of heaven is worthy to open. Daniel's not good enough to open it. Moses ain't good enough to open it. Abraham ain't good enough to open it. Isaiah the prophet, he's not good enough. Micah the prophet, he's not good enough. John the Baptist, he's not good enough. Peter the apostle, he's not good enough. Nobody, nobody but Jesus is worthy to open up the scroll and read what is written in it. And as if that wasn't enough honor, everything, every creature, Notice, this is every creature in heaven, earth, under the earth, and in the sea. Not just humans. Angels and things that are something other than angel that we don't even know what they are, but are pretty amazing and fantastic creatures. Right? Far better than anything that uh, they come up with from the Harry Potter series. Right? The fantastic creatures. Oh, well. Far more stunning and shocking and amazing than any of those things, anything we can imagine, are these creatures. And they fall down and worship the Lamb. They fall down and worship the most amazing creatures we could have ever imagined, fall down and worship Jesus after he was ridiculed, mocked, and spit upon on the cross. Gosh, you're just, just, I just would hate to be one of those guys that did that to Jesus. I mean, you spit on Jesus and now these amazing creatures that can snap your head off with a flick of their finger or falling down at his feet, worshiping him like this is really bad. Bad things are going to happen to me if I did that. It is impossible for us to imagine the majesty, the wonder, the awe that's taking place here. Because when John describes this, this isn't just like we go to a really great worship service where the music's hot and rocking and the spirit's moving and the preaching's really good. It's just a really great, great worship service. No, this isn't that. This is beyond that. This is speechless, don't have anything to say awe and majesty. Creatures who spend 
every single hour, every second of every hour in the presence of God, in all of His majesty and wonder and glory, every second of every hour for all of eternity, they're amazed into the place of speechlessness. That's why we can't imagine it. This is beyond us. But yet, God lets us have this brief glimpse into it to really understand where all of us who trust in Christ and are washed in His blood are going. Everything, everything we have to put up with here on this fallen earth will just melt away in that moment when we stand there with all the creatures of heaven and the myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands and see the Lamb open the scroll because He is the only one worthy and fall down with them and worship. This is our Savior. He is not, He is not like all the other false, fake gods we are told about throughout human history and in the culture today are in the culture to come and in the future to come. He's far greater than any of those. And I've hinted at this. Now we have to go and look right at the Mosaic sacrifices in the Mosaic Covenant, starting in Leviticus chapter 1. I, I will do this quickly. Well, sort of. Quick by my standards. Is that supposed to be another joke? You guys are supposed to be laughing at that one. So Leviticus chapter 1, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 6 and then jump down to 10 through 12. I really wish we could just read the whole chapter. Verses 1 through 6. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring an offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may accept, be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and he shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then they shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Now drop down to verse 10. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, he shall bring them a male without blemish, and he shall kill it. And on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and the priests shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces. And with his heads and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, burnt on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of a turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring its head off and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out by the side of the altar and he shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side of the place of ashes. 
you see the theme that keeps recurring throughout this whole subject of offering? It has to be a male without blemish. See, all things are pointing towards Jesus because he came and stood on the cross completely without blemish. Not only was he perfect in his personhood, but he was without blemish as having never disobeyed God the Father. I don't even know how to comprehend that. I mean, I'm, I'm just happy to get through the next 10 minutes without disobeying God. And he spends 33 years walking on this earth, dealing with boneheads and banana heads and doesn't disobey God. I mean, I could be a really faithful Christian if I didn't have to deal with other people. So how does Jesus do this? But yet he's without blemish when he is sacrificed on that twilight evening of Passover. It's not a coincidence that Jesus is nailed onto the cross and sheds his blood for our sins on the very evening, the very hour that the Passover lambs are being slaughtered in the temple of Jerusalem and their blood cast upon the altar. It's because he is the ultimate Passover lamb. He is the ultimate sacrifice to cover our sins and to cover all sins. And recognizing that takes us right to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is that big book before James and after Timothy and Thessalonians. So Hebrews chapter 9. Start in verse 11. This is where the author of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus is a better sacrifice than any of the other sacrifices through the Mosaic Covenant. Starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as our high priest of the good things that have come, then through the great and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his own creation, referring to the tabernacle in the, in the wilderness during Exodus, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Then drop down to verse 19. For, because when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in the worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything that is purified with blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Then verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly, meaning for Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin and sacrifice himself. Now jump to chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be that the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. See, the, the whole point of the sacrifices right here, it tells us, was to point to the shadowing of what was the true form, which is the Passover lamb, Jesus himself. Verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings have you not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me in the scroll of the book. And when he said the above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings, these according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. And then lastly, jump to verse 14 in chapter 10. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declared the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. He has offered once and for all, through His own blood, the forgiveness of all our sins. Remember when I referenced John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan River that day? I only said half of what he actually said. Do you remember his full statement? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is our Savior, who by His own blood has washed away our sins so that we are white in sinlessness. And that by His blood alone, there's no longer the need for the blood of bulls and goats and sheep that could never have really been provided forgiveness of sin anyway. They were simply the foreshadowing of what was to come. The only lamb 
whose blood could truly wipe away our sins. Oh, I don't know how this strikes you, but I, I'm, I'm just left with amazement and wonder at how much our God loves us. That in the very moment He killed that first animal for Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, He was already headed towards the cross and towards this place that we read about in the book of Revelation at the end of time, falling at the feet of the Lamb. And that we, we get to participate in all of this and be the ones who are cleansed by His blood out of nothing but His love for us. I don't know how to respond to that. I don't know what to do with it. It's too great. It's too marvelous. It's, it's, it's just too much beyond me. And I'm just here standing in this place on this day in this earth comprehending what I can of this. How much more will my stunned, shocking amazement be that day when I'm on the ground face down like all the other creatures of heaven? What a good, good Father we have. What a patient and kind and loving Father we have who is so patient with us that He began this whole process to bring us to the place of salvation in eternity past for the day of eternity future that we have yet to experience. And in His goodness, He just patiently brings us all along. Every one of us in here who have put our faith in Christ, we understand what a mess we were before. We understand how impatient we would be with ourselves if we were God. We understand just His patient kindness to just bring us along to the place where we finally put our faith and trust in Jesus and nothing but His blood shed on the cross. And and that's where I'm going to leave you today. Putting your trust in nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. If you've never done that, today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day to believe what Jesus has done to cleanse you and to make you right so that you can enjoy the fullness of all that you've been created to be. And for those of us who have done this, to just to just live and revel in the joy of His provision and care and love for us and the gift of His blood washing away all our sins so that we can stand in robes of righteousness. Lord, thank You, Father. Thank You, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank You, thank You, thank You for the blood of Jesus. Thank You for the blood of Jesus that washes away all our sins. Thank You for the blood of Jesus that just breaks the powers of darkness and Satan. Thank You, Father, for the blood of Jesus that is greater and higher than any other force and power in the universe, both in this world and in the heavenly world. Thank You, Father, that nothing, nothing is greater than the Lamb and His blood. Thank You, Father, that You have washed us in His blood. That at the fount of blessing, 
is the one that flows with the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with this same wonder and amazement at you and what you have done and what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.